Hello. Welcome to Amenity Space, a show that puts you in touch with architecture. As long as I can remember, I've had a fascination with the underground. Not just what's really there, the tunnels, the sewers, the lost rivers, but the magical, mythical place, the subterranean of our imagination, where Alice ended up when she fell down the rabbit hole and where Jules Verne imagined a lost world populated by dinosaurs. From Fungus the Bogeyman to the mysterious tunnel in the TV series Lost, our culture is full of references to magical underground places and the people who live there. But why does it hold such a fascination? I wanted to find out, so I went to speak to anthropologist Alan Abramson. Though he shared my enthusiasm, for him, the underground seemed to be primarily a negative place. There's something about the underground that has mythical qualities. And you can see that uh, if we look at uh, the numerous books and films uh, that have depicted it. And invariably they depict the underground as a kind of lost past or a kind of extant past, a past which um, should have gone but is still here. And it's here but it's not, um, it's not here amongst us, it's here below us. When we think about science fiction and its projection of the future, projection of the future is always uh, in spaces and places above, places um, which we get, in a, we get in a space ship to go to or it's a place from which um, beings in flying saucers come to see us. More recently in science fiction now, there seems to be a whole genre of movies post-apocalyptic where people end up living underground. Mm. Does that represent some shift in the way that we think about things, do you think? Well, I think it represents a definite shift in the way we think about the future because I think living underground is more of a dismal existence than living far away uh, over the horizon or above in, in another world. So that if we're imagining the future to be a place underground, then it's a place of last refuge and last resort. So I don't think people choose to live that way. And if they imagine the future to be an underground, a subterranean uh, future, then I think it's, a, it's apocalyptic. Does it have connotations with burial? It can't escape uh, connotations with burial. Whenever fantasy or literature or film places characters underground, at some point they're going to say this is like being in a tomb. You know, and I imagine that that's also one of the reasons why people find images of the underground compelling. Because... Though they might not want to be underground themselves, it's a way of, um, through other figures, of vicariously experiencing um, deathliness. Does that make it less literally an underground space and more a place where another space can exist in a way, a space in mm. our imaginations? We find it interesting to think about other dimensions that exist in the same place. Today, cosmologists in very complicated ways that <clears throat> most of us can't get our heads round, think about multiple universes all intersecting and existing in the same place. But no matter how clever we are, most of us can't imagine what they're talking about. But it is quite easy to understand how underneath the world as we see it today, there's another world in which trains run or water flows. That we can easily understand. So in some ways, the underground, again, is something very, very um, 
fascinating to think with because it's the easiest space we can imagine to exist in parallel with what goes on above. And yet the idea of the underground has been has had mythic qualities for a lot longer than that. We've been very interested in underground spaces for thousands of years, long before we had any notion that there were multiple universes. If we go back in history, most of the civilizations that um, thought about underground uh, societies or underground existences did so in relationship to death. The Greeks, in talking about Hades and the Romans too, were talking about the journey of the soul to some place which was dark, invisible to uh, ordinary human beings, just as it was inaccessible to them until they died. Theseus chasing the Minotaur through the, um, the cavernous maze is penetrating the earth at a most inhospitable spot. It's not a holiday for him to go into the cave. All these interpretations are very negative. Yeah, they it are. It not be that there's a more positive interpretation of just as the way that we might use the underground today to think about multiple <coughs> universes and to understand our place in a, in a complex universe, that maybe in the past we thought about underground spaces as a way, as a way of understanding the afterlife, heaven, hell. I mean, you said it, I mean, heaven was above and hell is below. The really mythical connotation of the underground is hell. And that what I suppose you're getting me to say or asking me to think of is the heaven, heavenly underground. In mo maybe in postmodern society when all of our traditional distinctions, traditional oppositions are broken down, maybe then we can begin to think the underground afresh and begin to give it um, positive value. But I think for that to happen, then we really do have to abandon all of our previous notions about the underground and make a very, very um, laborious mental leap it could be that that's what architects have to do and all architects have always had to do particularly modern avant-garde architects have always had to change the rules they've had to um, move on to new terrain and maybe one of the most revolutionary things avant-garde architecture could do is to build a celestial underground to build an underground which had positive connotations we're slightly divided here on the underground, aren't we? Because I'm trying to get a positive spin on it, and you're seeing it very always much in negative dismally. terms. I find it very difficult to uh, think of the underground except in, in negative terms. I have to say that I like thinking about the underground, but I like thinking about the underground vicariously through the exploits of other people. I think most people would prefer to um, suffer vertigo on a high mountain than claustrophobia in a cave. Yeah. Again, I'm just trying to counter this negative thing out. Take the example of people <coughs> living underground in the New York subway. Again, that's a very appealing idea, isn't it, that there's a whole army of people who are living a slightly alternative existence. Does the underground and people who live underground in some way represent a way of living outside of society, an alternative existence? I think it's very romantic uh, to imagine that the people who live in the uh, underground in, in the underground or in the sewers in New York are living an enviable lifestyle. I mean, that's really the paradox. The paradox is they're living a really marginal and presumably a very cruel existence in the underground, even though they can make it and they can make it work for them. The paradox is that those of us who are very comfortable above ground like thinking about that and like to imagine you know, that we could live in such marginality. In the same way that we like to imagine that we could live with uh, tribal and primitive peoples way out uh, on the other side of the world. But there's another sense in which um, various subcultures in modern society in particular have begun to think the underground as a positive way. From the 1960s onwards, various uh, political and, I suppose, artistic groups that self-consciously saw themselves as underground that's to say, you know, working on the margins, 
of society, very visible to themselves and producing all kinds of um, new creative um, forms, but invisible to those who existed um, in the mainstream. And that kind of underground involves an idea that in that very invisibility that you can produce things, you can be creative in a, in a way that you can't be in the mainstream. So maybe we could extend that. Um, and it's slightly elitist yeah. as well, isn't it? It's, it's secretive and it's elitist. Well, I suppose it's turning the idea of the elite on its head, whereas the elite are usually associated with those who are at the top of society. The creative underground began to see itself as an elite that um, had turned values on its head. And in that sense, the underground is that. You know, it's, uh, it's a space that hides and only makes its existence felt at the last moment, sort of breaks through. Um, and maybe that's also its power as well, that we can't see it constantly. We can only see when it erupts in, um, in surprising places. And maybe those places are what's interesting about the underground as well. You know, there are all kinds of places which we from above ground can see where we imagine maybe we'll get an insight into the underground or conversely where the underground will suddenly erupt. Like tube stations. Yeah. Tube stations don't strike you as particularly mythical at nine in the morning when you're trying to get to No, the they don't. No, they don't. I understand that. They don't, yeah. Takes a leap of the imagination. Uh, can you think of another example? Well, I think that, you know, if you're walking around the landscape and you see uh, mine shafts or caves, they invariably attract um, the mythical imagination, like Ossian's Cave in Glencoe. All it is is a very big defile, and there was no reason to create the quintessential primordial Scottish story uh, around this little hole that you can see from the road as you travel from uh, Fort William southwards. But it's a fact that um, just about everywhere where there's a cave, there's also a story to go with it. And it does seem to me that's because it's a point at which the underground and the above ground uh, become one. Yeah. I suppose it's also the door into a different world, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a door. I remember a myth from the 80s that there was a lamppost in Epping Forest that if you pressed a button would take you down into Margaret Thatcher's nuclear bunker. And it, had, it was an urban myth, but it had, it had resonance at the time. It has sort of credibility, doesn't it? I mean, it's hard for us to accept that below our feet is just um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet of soil and that's all you'll find there. And yet, if you live in a big city, if you live in London, for example, the fact is we aren't just walking above miles and miles of soil, we're walking above infrastructure, tube stations. So it isn't just soil beneath us. There is this whole extra life going on, and maybe that's part of the fascination of it. Maybe it's one of the defining characteristics of modern cities, certainly in opposition to the countryside, in which it's rare to um, come across populations that imagine there to be anything under them except soil. But in the big cities, you're right, I mean, in big cities, existence seems to be duplicated, and part of urban, modern urban consciousness has been the consciousness of um, two worlds. And the idea that often mm. gets people very excited that you're never more than two feet away from a rat. Yeah. In rats, in some way, represent the... The, the underground in London. Well, I, again, that's one of the... Re that's one of... When we think of the underground, we think of um, pretty... You know, pretty sordid creatures like rats and spiders and frogs and so on, all of which to some extent um, have deathly qualities or deathly connotations. And if you're asking me whether or not I can think of the underground in positive terms, um, then I think those are the kind of connotations that uh, we have to try and um, we have to try and obliterate. You know, we have to try and imagine that there are much nicer creatures in the underground other than rats, various unicorns. What would the unicorn of the underground look like? We've yet to imagine it. <laughs> what do you think it might look like? I haven't a clue. <laughs>
Subterranea Britannica is the UK's leading organisation for the research and documentation of man-made and man-used underground spaces and the Cold War. Um, if it's a sewer, a railway tunnel, an underground bunker, or you know, a relic of the Cold War, we investigate it and document it. We don't campaign, um, we don't you know, organise petitions or anything like that. Uh, we literally document and record and publish our findings on the internet where we're allowed to for the benefit and information of future generations. We're an international organisation. We have a thousand members scattered across the globe. Membership is open to all, and it's very reasonable. Seventeen pounds a year, and we, we do three magazines a year that we publish, and there's a closed uh, email list as well. We organise trips, and we've been off to uh, the Ukraine, to Berlin, to France, to Belgium to look at subterranean sites, and we even had a tour of Chernobyl last year, which was very interesting. You can find us on the internet at www.sub. S-U-B-B-R-I-T, all one word, dot O-R-G dot U-K. The scene, the light, the colour, the element, the uniforms, the weapons, all were utterly different. But there was one feature which was not different. The spirit was the same. So here we are in a really unassuming part of Dollis Hill in northwest London, and you wouldn't think that you know, Churchill had a secret hideout here. If we just look around, I mean, we've just got houses, a bit of industrial land, and of course the big giveaway, though, is this old building. This is the um, former post office research station, which shut in the 1970s. Um, and it was here, during World War II, that the gifted post office engineer Tommy Flowers developed Colossus, the world's first programmable computer, that was used by Alan Turing up at Bletchley Park in Milton Keynes to help crack the Nazi Enigma codes and thus uh, you know, foreshorten World War II. But there's a little bit more to this place than what we see on the surface in the fact that Churchill had his secret bunker here, the standby cabinet war rooms. So let's just take a walk down the road and see what we can come up with. So, you wouldn't think, but as we actually walk down this road, we're actually walking on top of the bunker. It's actually directly beneath our feet, 38 feet down, and the entrance to it is this small, unassuming building here. You wouldn't think it, but this is where uh, Churchill's secret hideout is. Now, luckily, I've got the keys. So, I just uh, put the key in there, turn that, we'll put the door open, and uh, in we go. Now, let's just switch uh, on the light. And uh, as you can see, we're just... Oh, yeah, don't trip over that. Let's just uh, shut ourselves in. Lock the door. And here we are within Churchill's bunker. And it was here on October the 3rd, 1940, that Winston Churchill himself descended these very steps to come and have a, hold a war cabinet meeting here. Now, we know that because he wrote of that meeting in his memoirs, which he penned in 1949, I think it was. He described this place as being near Hampstead, far from the light of day, a most dismal place. We held a cabinet meeting at Paddock so that every minister could satisfy himself as to his working and sleeping apartments. We celebrated this occasion with a vivacious luncheon, then returned to Whitehall. Now, quite what a vivacious luncheon would have been in 1940, I'm not sure. But let's get down these steps. Do mind your, uh, your footing. And so, hang on to the hang rail. And uh, welcome to the bowels of Dollis Hill. Wow. Uh, 
Okay, so we've gone down two flights of stairs already, and this is just top level. Yeah, this is yeah. top level. Now, um, here there used to be, you can see the door frame, there used to be a, um, a gas type door here, and we've got this dog leg corridor, another door frame, and here indeed is uh, one of the old doors. Okay, complete with the message passing hatch and everything else. Wow. Old electrical switch here. And we come out into the Holy Grail of World War II, the standby cabinet war. It's a shame that uh, the people who are listening to this can't actually be here because we are standing in total darkness, um, illuminated only by uh, hand and head torches. And in front of us we have a 120 foot long corridor, a bit like you'd find in a, an office uh, block, the rooms off to each side. Um, and as you can hear, it's uh, enormously atmospheric. Just looking at the condensation on these ducts above us. Yeah, well, and as you think though, this is built in 1938-1939. Uh, All this duct work was state-of-the-art air conditioning yeah. in its day. Um, and we'll have a look at the air conditioning plant a little later on. But this is indeed hallowed ground. This is where Churchill came. The only occasion Churchill actually ever visited this bunker was on that, uh, that day in October 1940. A second war cabinet meeting was held here in 1941, but Lord Privy Seal Clement Attlee, the man who ousted Churchill from 10 Downing Street in 1946, chaired that meeting. Churchill wasn't here. He never liked it here. He found it damp. And if, if everybody could <laughs> see the amount of water running down the walls and yeah. things here, they, they'd understand the meaning of the word damp. But Churchill, of course, wanted to be in central London. He didn't want to be out in the burbs like we are here. And so he never came to that meeting. And this building was never used in anger again during World War II. Mm-hmm. Right, give me a favour. Um, yep. Turn your torch out. Wow. Doesn't get a lot darker than this, does it? There's absolutely zero that light. That's actually really, really quite bewildering. Yeah, all hands on deck. Oh um, just unbelievable. Yeah, well, we, we've turned off all the lights and we're standing here in absolute total darkness. There is no light whatsoever. So, so you so cannot so see anything. It is pure sensory deprivation. Um, I and mean, I can actually find my way around here in the dark because I yeah. know it so well. But you imagine if, you, you know, if the power failed, yeah. you know, hence why we always carry torches. Yeah. Well, that's leads on quite neatly. I mean, obviously, did it have its independent power supply down here? Oh, absolutely. Um, down on the lower floor, there's actually a generator room, and the generator is still in place down there. And when we open for tours twice a year here, the next tour being on Thursday the 12th of May, um, we actually take people around and show them the generator room and things like that. It is, um, it's all original from 19, you know, late 1930s engineering. Sure. Um, but this is you know, a most remarkable thing. There are very few places in Britain where you can actually you know, have your eyes open and be in pitch darkness. There, and there is no light here mm-hmm. whatsoever. And we're only on the upper level. It gets even darker downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to spend the night down here. At the end of World War I, the government of the day wondered what would happen about World War II, and they were specifically wondering about the risk of bombing on London by an enemy. Various schemes were thought of as about how to keep government going in the event of uh, central London becoming destroyed, and over the the course of the 20s and the 30s, government played with ideas about sending bits of government up to the West Midlands or down to the West Country, and as governments do, all these things came and went, and nothing was, well, you know, really done. Then, of course, we have the rise of Nazi Germany and the Munich crisis. 
the government decides that war is imminent and thinks, well, we've got to keep government running in case the Houses of Parliament and Central London is destroyed. So, um, in 1938, the Ministry of Works drew up plans to have a standby war cabinet headquarters built here in Dollis Hill, underneath the site of the Post Office Research Station. Construction started later that year, took 13 months to complete at the cost of £250,000, an absolute fortune in 1938, and in 1939 the building was completed. It was used in anger twice, October the 3rd, 1940, when Sir Winston Churchill came here and held a, a, a meeting of the War Cabinet, uh, down in the War Cabinet room, and again in 1941, when Lord Privy Seal Clement Attlee chaired another War Cabinet meeting in the presence of Australian Premier Robert Menzies, and Menzies is documented as having given a 40-minute overview on the Australian war effort. In 1943, the... Um, former gasometers in Marsham Street in central London were converted into a permanent war headquarters and the furniture etc from here was moved to that site codenamed Anson. From that point onwards Paddock was not used again by the government and eventually returned to the hands of the post office. It had a variety of uses throughout the late 40s, 50s, 60s and into the 70s. Everything from a recording studio to a sports and social club, storage, they even grew iodine crystals down here at one stage. And when the post office pulled out of the post office research station, the bunker fell into disuse. In the 1980s, the men from the ministry returned and they were looking at using Paddock to replace the uh, ageing purpose-built war headquarters for North West London. This is the Cold War headquarters. Apparently they had a bit of a damp problem in the purpose-built facility. They came here and learnt the meaning of the word damp and so stayed with the facilities um, up at Neasden. In 2000, Subterranea Britannica was the first group ever to enter this bunker. We came in in total darkness like we did today and found, well, we could have found everything. But what we did find was a lot of abandoned filing cabinets, a lot of rubbish and 18 inches of water down on the lower floor. So if you come over here, find the water, there's a lot of water down here. And then here, we've got the air scrubber. Now, that's all British made and that was state of the art in... 1939, made by Vokes in Guildford, and that would have taken all, you know, that would have been used for purifying the air, getting any mustard gas out of the air or anything like that. This bunker is codenamed Paddock, and nothing too much should be read into that, it's really you know, just a, a code name given by the government as they did to all their places. Now, um, at the end of World War I, Tattersalls had racing stables up uh, the road, and those were cleared in 1921, I believe it is, for the housing development you see all around here. And one of the names was named Paddock Road in memory of those racing stables. However, it wasn't until 1994 when spy author Nigel West, better known as former Conservative MP Rupert Allison, uh, identified correctly the fact that um, the Paddock Bunker was indeed on this site. So, throughout the bunker you can see these wonderful straw stalactites. Um, the water leaches through the concrete and they are absolutely amazing. We've got some tremendous ones in the kitchen. Um, you sort of draw it joining up nearly down onto the worktop um, they come so far down from the ceiling and there's some stalagmites forming on the floor in places as well so do watch your footing as you go around don't want to uh, pull either trip over on anything that won't do our insurance uh, premiums any good at all So there's about 50 rooms down here. Um, 
all the rooms had different functions. There was a room for the Ministry of Works, a room for the uh, Ministry of, uh, of War, for the Ministry of Agriculture, for the Ministry of Food, for the uh, Ministry of Transport. Um, and all have had their own function. Somewhere in here we believe Churchill had a bedroom as well, but we've never actually established where that was. And he'd have two flats knocked into one down at Neville's Court to give him some accommodation there. Okay, now what I'd like you to do, if you can stand there, if you can stand there for me, please. Yeah. You stand there. No, you stand, no, right. stand there for me. Okay. Right, there's a really good feature in here as well. Okay, you can have a shower. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. It was like the gunge tank. Or something. I could see it coming. Well, I thought, no, I'll be a sport. <laughs> no, it's very wet and there's a lot of condensation. Uh, and it's unsurprising, really, because you know, we're, we're 38 feet down on the lower level. At this level, we're only about, uh, we're about 25 feet here. But above us, there's a five foot thick um, reinforced concrete slab. The walls are five foot thick. We're standing on another three foot thick concrete slab and the whole thing sits on a bed of gravel. So it was designed to withstand a direct hit from the largest German bomb available in 1939. That's a 500 pounder. The British had a bit bigger bomb. We had a 1,000 pound tall boy. But this would have taken a direct hit. So the surface building may well have been destroyed but the occupants of this bunker, in the words of James Bond, would have been shaken but not stirred. So as we walk along this 120 foot long corridor, we can only imagine what it actually would have been like with you know, it all fully kitted out. There would have been um, tables and chairs in the offices. On the right here we had a kitchen, so you could have had yourself a cup of tea and a sandwich. There was a full blown canteen on the, top, on the uh, main post office research station building, so you wouldn't have you know, had gourmet meals down here. But if the bunker had been used in lockdown mode, then you could have got yourself some refreshment there. However, it's got all these rooms, it's got a kitchen, it's got a nice bomb-proof lid on it and everything else. But there's one thing it's missing, and that's toilets. Because they actually built this without any toilets. The toilets were in the surface building. And in the event of this uh, bunker being used in lockdown mode in a gas attack or something like that, the sanitation, even for Sir Winston himself, would have been a fire bucket. Strange, but true. Let's go in here. So if we just walk into this room, we can hear the acoustics change. And behind us, we have the remains of what was the sports and social club in here. And this was the bar. It also was a recording studio at one stage, and you can see a bit of the acoustic ceiling still left in here. But at the far end, we've got this most amazing structure. And it looks like a huge metal wine rack. But it's not. This is the 1939 telephone frame. If we come around here... We can actually have a look at this. And you can see we've got all the old connection panels still here, and some of them are marked. 100 pairs to main distribution frames, sub-basement, ZSBSB, ZTBSB, ZDHTS, teleprinter circuits. Um, 54 pairs to main distribution frames, sub-basement. And you think the wires would have come in over there through that hole in the wall, and there would literally have been thousands upon thousands of copper pairs wired by hand by old men in half moon glasses onto all these terminal boards which are just sat here very quietly doing nothing. 
And it's amazing that we've got this left. I've never seen another one of these anywhere on my travels. It's Cut. huge, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is it's absolutely massive. A massive circuit board, yeah. essentially. This would be on a chip the size of your fingertip these days. Yeah. That's incredible, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. So each one of these units has got, what, uh, 20... Yeah, 20 odd. 20 pairs. Yeah. yeah. Connectors. And there's room for loads. Yeah. <laughs> Hundreds. Yeah. Thousands. Yeah. Wow. So did they, when they were um, using it for the social club and then recording rehearsal space, then did they leave all of these things in? I mean, they obviously left this all intact and that was awesome. Was that part of the. They deal to use the space. How did they get occupancy? Well, the, after, at the end of World War II, occupancy reverted back to the post office, and they did all the work here. They did work on early acoustic research as well, and um, basically they kept using it for a variety of functions up until the time the post office pulled out of here, which I believe was in 1977. Right. Mad I believe, I believe it's 77. Some places are very, very receptive. I mean, Subterranean Botanica has an extremely good name, and unlike some elements of urban exploration, as we're you know, subterranean documentation recording, we don't go around breaking in places and smashing padlocks off doors and things. We ring up, we ask nicely, we write polite letters, and I've you know, made cold calls into government departments and been you know, welcomed with open arms. Our reputation goes before us. 
hmm. as does the research on our website and our documentation. And we freely share our information. We don't keep it you know, strictly to ourselves. We publish it on the website. And um, wherever we go, we always install the site owner who knows exactly what we're doing and they get copies of the photographs afterwards. Hmm. Hmm. The Darmin carried on with little or no rest for days and nights on end making trip after trip across the dangerous waters, bringing with them always men whom they had rescued. The numbers they have brought back are the measure of their devotion and their courage. You can see all these you know, bits of abandoned filing cabinets and everything else, minus that. Again, there would have been a gas-tight door here. Look at the thickness of that six-and-a-half-inch thick steel door frame. And we can present it with another set of stairs. And you can see it says floor 27. Sadly, there aren't 27 floors here. Um, floor 27 was purely um, a floor identifying number as every floor uh, in the post office search station had its own unique numbering system rather than building B floor 4. It was just referred to as floor 27. So down the steps we're going. Mind your foot in here. See some old, old water tanks there. Come down here, well, the second flight of steps, and it's down these steps that Churchill would have come, which was the um, wall cabinet meeting room, which is actually on the lower floor. We come up into a little landing, turn towards the corridor, and as we can see, we're flooded. There's uh, a good six inches of water there. Now, normally, if that wasn't there, we'd actually be able to walk along here and go and have a look at the wall cabinet reading room but um, without uh, some seriously big pair of wellies we're not able to. Now to your right would have been the wall, ca the wall cabinet room. Just over to the left is the uh, map room and then at the far end of the corridor on the left is the generator room. And down here there's only rooms on one side. We've only got half the floor space down here. We're now 38 foot down, and if you take out your mobile phone, you see it doesn't work. Um, that's one of the things I really like about being down here, is that nobody can get hold of me. for a little bit of isolation, and it's also incredibly quiet down here as well. There's no sound from the outside world. So if you're actually down here lying down, and you remain absolutely still and silent, you have both oral and visual sensory deprivation. Very, very disorientating. Construction was quite interesting. Obviously, in 1938, they didn't have the huge numbers of JCB diggers that we actually uh, have today. A lot of this was done by crane and bucket, you know, by hand, and perhaps a little bit of gelignite just to loosen the ground. But what happened was the hole was dug, shuttering was put in, and the concrete was continuously poured. Things like the generator were put in just before they for the, craned into the lower floor, just before they laid the uh, the slab that we're now um, stood upon, and then other uh, large items of equipment were put in as they went, and everything else was carried down the stairs mm -hmm. by hand, no lift. So we're back on the upper level um, at the bottom of the stairs where we came by this old gas door. So if we walk back through here, past the gas door, find the steps, and all the water, and walk across the boarding, and then up we go. So you can hear the acoustic change, it gets noticeably cooler here. You can also just start to hear some of the traffic noise from the road outside. Come up the second flight of steps, 
once we get to the top, turn left, and there's the exit door. So let me unlock that. Open the door, and we're out into the rain and the daylight. <laughs> That's quite good. <laughs> so I lock the door. That's it.